a Tuesday at Dobbs's. Thank you so much, everyone, for getting involved, sharing your thoughts, your opinions, and your insights. It's all hugely appreciated. Apologies for not being able to get back to and also share all opinions, but every single input has helped contribute to this week's episode. So please do carry on sharing your thoughts and getting involved. It's massively appreciated. Right. I asked a question four days ago. The worst bike you've ever owned. I want to start with that, but... In fact, there's one more thing I want to start with because I was just having a read through Bike Magazine, one of my favorite biking magazines. And I want to give a bit of, if I can, consumer advice. Advice on what kind of motorbike to buy from a financial point of view. Consumer advice for your wallet. You see, a few years ago, in fact, it was probably, probably eight years ago or so now, I bought a Triumph Speed Triple. It was my dream bike, I spent a lot of time looking for it, but I remember at the time buying it, there was a Ducati GT, GT 1000, I'm just checking here because this is an article from Bike, Ducati GT 1000, lovely looking classic modern retro Ducati, really beautiful, very rare. It was only 500 pounds more expensive than my Triumph, but I thought no. My dream is to own a Triumph. It may be close between the two, but I'm gonna go for the Triumph. Well, I've just seen an article from Bike Magazine here, Retro Retros, and in this article, it's about retro bikes, but maybe from around 20, 10, 15, 20 years ago or so. So they're almost pushing into the Retro Retro segment. And I found it fascinating because the Ducati GT, that I was looking at for about four and a half, maybe just below 5,000 pounds, back then about eight to 10 years ago. Now, if you want one, it's 9,990 pounds or so. And if you want the poor smart one, you're going to be looking at around about 20,000 pounds. I know someone who's got the poor smart one, and to the best of my knowledge, if my memory serves me correctly, they paid around 8,000 pounds for that bike. They've just skyrocketed. I mean, take a look at some of this list. You've got the Kawasaki Zephyr, Zephyr 550. Great buy for £2,790. You've then got the Triumph Thunderbird 900, £4,200. These are all prices that you'd expect. Kawasaki W650 as well. But as I go on to the next page here, Moto Guzzi 1000S. £10,595. What does that tell me? Buy Italian, because Italian bikes are almost a sure thing to go up in value in years to come. It cannot be a coincidence that out of the list of eight there, the only two bikes flirting around the £10,000 plus mark are Italian. And if I would have bought that Ducati, for 500 pounds more than my Triumph. My Triumph is probably worth about 3,000, 3,500 pounds now. I would now be sitting on an investment worth about 7,000 pounds more. Right, the worst bike you have ever owned. I found this especially interesting because a huge amount of bikes on this list are Japanese and I was wondering why that is. But to be fair to the Japanese bikes, in the UK at least, when we're looking for a decent, cheap bike, there is nowhere else to go other than the Japanese bikes because there is an abundance of choice. So have a listen to a few people's insights here. 
1992 Yamaha XV535 Virago, my first big bike. What didn't break? Frequently ran out of fuel, no fuel gauge, no warning lights. Couldn't look in the tank to see how much fuel there was because there was a false tank. Clutch went, starter motor went, reg rectifier, water in the carbs, battery failed. Gave up, sold it for a loss. Some years later, tried again with an 1100 Virago, rode it home on the Saturday, rode it again on Sunday, and then when I tried to get to work on Monday, it wouldn't start. Wasn't even going to give that one a chance, straight back to the dealer. Uh, Freddie, uh, not one specific bike, but any bikes with carburetors are just a faff to get right. I uh, see, Leon, I agree. I've got a phobia of carved bikes. I've had so, I've had two carb bikes and so many starting issues, just running lumpy. I, after my second carved bike, my 2002 Suzuki Bandit, I swore I would never have another carved bike again. It was fuel injection. That is my, my only must. My only line in the sand when I'm looking at a bike, it's got to be fuel injected. And that roughly speaking is around about 2008 onwards. Pretty much every bike from 2008 onwards. Fuel injection, great. That's all I'm looking at. Oscar from the Netherlands. While I was a uni at, while I was a uni at student. While I was a student at uni, I obtained my biking license, hence I had no money. As a result, first big bike, 1980s Kawasaki GPZ 400. It left me stranded at a supermarket with a rucksack full of groceries in midsummer and also refused to start after waiting for a bridge to close. Benji, this is interesting. Freddy, worst bike I ever owned. Super Soco. That is the electric one, Super Soco TC Max. It's an electric motor, mo motorbike, looks pucker, was a fun ride and very economical. So why is it the worst bike I've ever owned? Well, I moved out of London, so the range of the TC Max was no longer large enough for my knees, for my needs. I went to sell it back to the dealer they didn't want it as they already had too many used models to sell. I bought it for £4,500, ended up selling it for £1,500. Two years later, I'll never buy electric again. The used market for them simply doesn't exist. Now I drive around on my classic 500 vibrating for days after riding. Haha, <laughs> seriously, love it. A bike was sold. Benji, fascinating insight. Next one, Suzuki DR650 is up there. Great bike, but tons of design flaws. The next one, Yamaha TW200. Just too weak, dangerous on highways, fat tires, not a benefit 99% of the time. Freddie, Harley Sportster 883, stage two tuned, 34 horsepower at the back wheel, even set up on a dyno jet. This meant that forward progress was only measurable on a geological scale. The suspension and brakes were totally overwhelmed, and although the straight-through Vance and Hines exhaust sounded awesome and set car alarms off, it was just intolerable after five minutes riding, even with the earplugs. Stephen, I'm with you. I, I know I'm in the minority here. I'm, I'm not a fan of loud pipes. I'm, I get the thing where people say loud pipes save lives, but loud pipes, they... They give me hearing problems. I think tinnitus may be the, the medical term, but I, I can't deal with loud pipes. On my Bonneville, 
they're loud, but also awful loud. It's rattly and embarrassing. And every time I get off it, I, I feel like I need to go and visit the GP to check my hearing. It's just horrible, that ringing in my ear. Uh, that's the first thing I need to do to the Bonneville. I need to put the standard exhaust back because oh, I, found, I find loud exhausts quite annoying. Um, Freddie, Mutt125, Fat Sabbath. That's, this is a British brand but made in China. So this is interesting. It would often cut out uh, the power in the middle of the road and take ages to restart. That's interesting because they're actually not that old, the Mutts. Next one, Zontas Javelin, stalled at idle, so I had to leave the clutch down and revs on whenever I came to a stop. I'm sure they're not old either, the Zontas. Here's a surprise, Mark. You break my heart. Honda VFR 800 VTEC. Next one, Yamaha R1. Next, we've got a Triumph here. Triumph Legend TT 1999 model. Spent more time under it than on it. A thousand euros spent in 2010. Another surprise, Suzuki SV650. Another one, Honda CLR125. Someone else, Freddie, maybe the better discussion. Carbs versus fuel injected. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think this could almost be classed as an exact cu cutoff for about 70 to 80% of these. What's carbs? What's fuel injected? Fuel injected is just more reliable and easier to live with. I welcome any hit back on that. Uh, again, Suzuki SV650, just really uncomfortable. Tried changing the seat handlebars, pegs. Eventually just gave up. BMW K1200 GT, only due to reliability issues, clutch, uh, basket, ABS, dangerously sticky cruise control. Next one, KTM Duke 390. Awesome to ride, but damn, a lot of trouble looking back. Then I've got a Montessa, another Suzuki, a Yamaha. Royal Enfield Continental GT, just bought with 2,500 miles on the clock. This is a 2013 model, so before the rebirth of Royal Enfield. Bought from a non-Royal Enfield dealer, absolutely brilliant, except I was using it as my sole mode of transport. It had an electronics issue causing it to cut out in the wet. I went back and forth to the dealer who couldn't fix it. This just amazes me. They're such simple bikes. Take it to a dealer and, and they still can't fix it with almost no electronics. After a lot of grief, they finally agreed to, uh, to take the bike back and refund it, uh, refund me the money, albeit not the whole amount I paid for it. Terrible dealer experience for sure, but it didn't sour me on Royal Enfields. I have another, and I'm thinking of a classic 350. Uh, Pan-European from Honda, top heavy nightmare. And finally, another Honda NVX 250, two-cylinder, two-stroke. There are a lot a lot of old Japanese bikes in there. I'm actually surprised how few modern bikes there are. I thought we may see some tech fests, maybe from BMW or KTM in there, even some Harleys, but no, it's usually the older stuff. It shows how good the new stuff has become. Right, I'm moving on to Norway now. That was worst bikes owned. What can I take from it? Carbs and older bikes are just unreliable. This is from Gear in Norway. Freddie, a comment regarding Irish and Swedish motorcycle prices. Here in Norway, it's much, much worse. 
The tax and duty system here lead to wild prices. I can mention some of the prices of 2023 models featured in this episode. The prices are for 2023 models quoted in British pounds sterling. So these are the prices Gears given me for prices in Norway. Royal Enfield Interceptor in Norway, £8,900. In the UK, £6,600. It's 2,300 less. Triumph T100 in Norway, £11,200. In the UK, 9,600. Triumph T120, £14,200. In the UK, it's 11,800. I could go on and on, but have a listen to one more. Harley Davidson Street Glide in Norway, you have to spend 38,000 pounds, whereas in the UK, 29,000. Gear, fascinating insight. I've heard Norway's expensive, uh, but that is huge. I, I think you also, in Norway in general, Fairly big earners, so you can potentially to some extent take the hit, but that is fascinating. Okay, I've got a, a little comeback here for all of the more traditional Harley riders, especially in the US. This is from a 30-year-old American with regards to Harley-Davidson and how he sees Harley-Davidson's the image and everything that goes with it from a US perspective. I haven't had this perspective before, and I read it just about 20 minutes ago with, with uh, open eyes here. Freddie, I was listening to what you said about Harleys, and frankly, I think maybe you might need something spelled out for you about them. They're viewed better abroad than at home. I don't want to go into too much socio-political happenings, but understand that America is going through a demographic shift. Biker gangs in America are viewed differently because we've seen them in the news or in person. They're violent, they're rapists, they're kidnappers, they are racist, they're thuggish, they are people to be avoided uh, or dealt with. That's not to say that all people who ride bikes are as you and I know. I'm just saying that Harley is associated with biker gangs or old men. And for a simply target market, and from a simply target market, that's just bad, very bad. Harley seems unwilling or unable to break this. There's also another issue here, and that's one of styling and want. Look, it's no secret that Harley hasn't been doing good in terms of stocks over the past 10 years. And yes, the thing we just talked about plays a part in that. I would actually say that about half of the issues Harley face uh, Harley faces are from that. However, another problem they face is that they are just not producing the bikes that people want. People don't go on these great big long trips in the same way. They do, or maybe they do, but they do it on lighter, more rugged motorcycles, or they simply take an adventure bike. The Desert Sled from Ducati, for example, did extremely well here and then didn't, basically because people saw the limitations of it and also the expenses of it. Harley just haven't, hasn't kept up with what America wants, and frankly, I'm worried it's going to kill it. Actually, I guess I should take that back. 
I can honestly say at 30 years old, I actually don't give a damn. I'm excited to see what zero motorcycles are doing and I'm aware that there is a pretty interested sports bike market here in the US. You can always see them on a Friday and Saturday night around America and parking lots, hanging out, tinkering on the bikes, swapping bikes for the night. And zero motorcycles, this is interesting, zero motorcycles are starting to appear here too, but they aren't appearing at the little cafe hangouts beside the old Honda CBs and new Royal Enfields and their the YJ and XJ and TJ Jeeps. Because as cool as the technology is, the zero bikes, the electric bikes, just don't fit that other biking market. The ones who go backpacking in the mountains for the week or skiing at some half-forgotten ski lodge and sit around drinking coffee and Kalimoto, pronounced Kalamoho, Kalamoko, and talk about politics and philosophy. And that's always been a demographic in America because the gearheads, young arty people, and the young adventurers are always the ones who set cool in this country. If only half of that demographic care about zero motorcycles, then none of that demographic give a damn about Harley. Really, really interesting, Matthew, and, and very good to hear polar opposite end of the spectrum. Hearing from, I've heard from a lot of Harley owners, the traditional Harley owners in the US, so to hear from the very, very end of the spectrum, thank you for that insight. Moving on to Mark. Freddie, your comment about not, ah, your comment about not caring where Triumph are made. Look, Triumph are not a cheap bike. BMW still manufacture in Germany. Triumph clothing range uh, is made in India, as an example. It's very expensive for exploited labor. We now have the most welfare in the UK paid to people in work. Since our manufacturing base outsourced, which has made a very few, a few very wealthy uh, individuals, Triumph have Union Jacks all over their product, yet practically nothing sourced from the UK. I'm sure if your livelihood vanished offshore, you wouldn't defend it. Yeah, Mark, thanks for sharing that. It's a very valid point. Actually, I wasn't specifically defending it. I, I was kind of admitting that uh, I was stumped when someone said, look, Freddie, would you buy a Rolex if you knew it was made in China? And that did stump me because... No, I, I probably wouldn't. I want it made in Switzerland. So I don't specifically have an argument for that, Mark. And it is a good point. I'm a fan of Triumph. I'm a, I'm a fan of the Triumph lifestyle gear. Would I prefer it all to be made in the UK? Yes. How much extra would I pay for it to be made in the UK? That's the tricky bit. It, it's really tough. I remember I went on the Triumph factory tour in Hinkley, and I saw, Hinkley, it is Hinkley, yeah, and I saw all of the, the classic triumphs and the history around it. And you see all of the, what should I call them? Uh, the, the artisans, the people who get really hands-on, and they're still there, Mark, at Hinkley working. You know, you can see them pinstriping the special edition triumphs. You can see them putting certain triumphs together, but it's all the Triumph Factory customs. And in reality now, the way it stands, Mark, 
when you can go on the Triumph Factory tour and you can see all of the, the experts still there passing down the knowledge of the pinstriping and the special things they do, it probably is almost more for show than anything, to show that there is still that expertise in Hinkley because relatively speaking, it's done on a microscopic scale. It's great to see, it's great that that history gets passed down, but it's in no means anywhere near enough of a scale to be, to be significant in the production of Triumphs. I know open-eyed that everything happens in Thailand with the tiny minority done, almost for show in the UK, I know that. They've been talking about bringing some of it back to the UK. It would be lovely if it happened uh, purely from, well, you know, being a British brand, being able to make it there. But it's a point well taken, Mark, it really is. I should say just one final thing, getting to see people with that experience, passing that knowledge down through the generations. There was a lady working there at Triumph, pinstriping. And her whole job there on her apprenticeship while learning would be pinstriping these Triumph Factory custom tanks going all the way along, top to bottom, checking it, wiping it down with a cloth and going again, pinstriping all the way down along the edge, wiping it down. And she would do that all day, every day until she was at a level where the, the master level pinstriper would look at, it, look at it, ask her to do it again, and it was perfect. And it was only after she could do it again and again, day after day, that she was ready to take that on as a non-apprentice level. It was, uh, it's a really in-depth thing. It's a proper skill. I was amazed at the level of detail they put into those, especially Triumph Factory Customs. Mark, thank you. Moving on to Latvia, Rinalds. Freddie, question for you, and I'd love your opinion. I currently own, uh, this, is, this is Rinalds' exact bike here. I currently own a Yamaha TDM850, my first bike. The question I've got for you is this. What would be the better transition for possible next bike? I'm thinking Yamaha Tracer 700, Honda CRF 1100 Africa Twin, or Honda Transout 750, because the idea is to make a bad choice in life and to get a new bike from the dealership, or just stay with the TDM but upgrade to the 900cc. There's one thing for sure, I now know I want a sport touring bike or adventure bike. When I'm 50 years old, I'll own a Goldwing most definitely. Regards, Renalds Latvia. A great to hear from a Latvian bike, Renalds. This is not a common bike that you've got, Renalds. TDM 850, I think they were made mid-1990s up until about 2000, if my memory serves me correctly. And this is a lovely looking bike with those twin headlamps. I think they've aged incredibly well. I had a look online, there's, there's one available on Autotrader in the UK, and that gives you an idea about how rare these are. So I would actually have a tip here. If you're looking for a left field, sports tourist slash adventure style bike, go and check out the TDM850, it's got really cool quirky looks. It will have Japanese build quality and reliability. You can pick them up still if you can find one for really good money at 2,850 pounds and there's only one way they're going. Plus the fact, they're 75 horsepower these bikes. That is more than enough horsepower to enjoy in every single situation. You've got the 900 after that, that came straight after the TDM 850. So the TDM 900 came after. 
Vinales, I don't think that's quite as good a looking bike. I'm sure it will be an upgrade with regards to performance, but looks-wise, that TDM850 has some really unique looks. So I'd be inclined to skip the 900. And if you're going for a new bike, I personally always think you should, you should try something completely different. If you're going new, just go new and try something else. So I'm going to get rid of that Renault's. And I can see that you're looking for a new bike ideally because you want to make, and I'm quoting a bad decision, and go new. Uh, the issue here is you can buy an Africa Twin 1100, about three years old, for about £400 cheaper than a brand new Transalp. Both of these bikes are going to be a good step up for you. 75 horsepower, upgraded to the 90 horsepower for the Africa or for the, the Transalp. And that Transalp upgraded to 100 horsepower for the Africa Twin. So Renault, you're right on the money here. Both will be an upgrade. I'd be inclined to go towards the... I think I'll go for the Transalp. That's a good step up in horsepower. It's only 10 horsepower less than the Africa Twin. And you can go into that dealership and pick up what a lot of people are saying is a seriously good bike for under 10,000 pounds. Looks brilliant. Cult following, the fact that it's being brought back and you've still got the nostalgia of the old bike there as well. I think that's going to be one of the bikes to own, that Transap 750. So in I would say you've made a superb shortlist. I would also say you've bought a superb bike in that TDM850. It's such a left field choice. My advice, go with the Transalp. Thank you, Renaldus. All the best over to you in Latvia. I move on. Freddie, isn't it funny how different markets of the world are so different? Ask an American and they'll say buy a Harley. They're dirt cheap, parts are available everywhere and anyone can fix them. But here in New Zealand, Japanese bikes are the cheap and plentiful ones. For the last 30 years, we've been getting cheap bikes and used imports from Japan, both cars and bikes, to the extent that, in fact, some bikes have now become rare in their home market of Japan and are actually being shipped back from New Zealand over to Japan. Harley, oh, and, and as for Harley, don't do anything else well. Please come back to me on this, Freddie. I recall your test in Tenerife of the Harley Pan America adventure bike. You said it was the best bike you've ever ridden. Regards, Cassette Walkman. Okay, I'll touch, on, I'll touch on the first point on this because the amount of Americans I have coming back to me and saying, look, go out, get a Harley Davidson. They're incredibly cheap to run, very, very simple. And it just doesn't work like that in Europe. In Europe, they're known as being incredibly expensive to run and maintain. But then in other countries, from a UK perspective, I often have people saying that Triumphs are expensive to run. But from a UK perspective, parts are really, from my point of view, incredibly good value. They're extremely simple and cheap to maintain. I would say, I would say that the Triumph Bonneville has been the, the cheapest, best value bike with regards to maintenance. It's cost me less than any bike I've ever owned. Uh, but I know that's not the case in every single country. So it, you're right there, because the Americans will all say that Harleys are, I'm sure, really good value because just the amount of parts available and the expertise on every street corner, 
is, is there, unlike it would be in any other country. And regards to the Pan-American, yes, yes, I admit I did say it was the best bike I've ever ridden, and it is the best bike I've ever ridden. I know I've touched on it before, but I had that bike for two to three days in Tenerife, for the Pan-America, and I couldn't stop riding it. I rode it for about six or seven hours, just for fun, because it was so comfortable, it was so smooth, it was so beautiful to ride on every single kind of surface, on the motorways, on the twisting bends, it was a joy. But I do say that, having never ridden any other adventure bike over a thousand cc, there's a, there's a guy called Istok, he messaged me, he's in Tenerife at the moment, and he owns a BMW GS 1250, and he rented out a, a Harley Pan America from a rental place in Tenerife. And the first thing he said to me is that the Harley Pan America compared to the GS feels like a tractor. Whether or not that's true, I can't comment, but I've had a few BMW GS riders saying that the Pan America is, is nothing on the GS. I welcome any input on that because I'm not sure if I've ever heard of a rider who hasn't ha said or hasn't had universally good things to say about the GS. Right, I'm on to Zane. Freddy, wingman of the road. Ah, that's, that's the tent made specifically for bikers. It rolls up into a fairly neat little package about that, about that wide and that long. I had it on my Barcelona road trip. Specifically for bikers, it's got a, a sleeping bag rolled in it. So in essence, all you do, you just roll out this tent. It takes about two minutes to set up. Put one long bar in the middle, two curved bars either side and there you've got it it's very small but it's very practical and it's it's just easy if you want to stop off all you need is something to sleep in you're not going to be able to sit up in it it's too small but it's definitely got a purpose and i'm a big fan of it so zane was in contact with wingman after buying one got in touch with them and Wingman asked if I would like to come on one of their tours in the summer. They gave me a heads up where, they will, uh, where the tour will take place and that they will be in touch once the tours go live. To say I'm excited is an understatement. I'll be taking the Little Enfield 350 to the mountains, the desert and beyond. The first part of the trip, I'll be traveling solo from the north of England to meet the Wingmen or the Wingman crew in the north of Spain. What advice? can you give to someone who has never ridden outside of the UK? As the prospect of doing this solo is pretty daunting, but too damn exciting, and a once in a lifetime opportunity. I've watched the video where you traveled to Barcelona with the wingman. What would you do differently if you were to go again? Some key points. I've been thinking of the following are as follows. The best way to travel through France, i.e. toll roads versus, versus no, no toll roads, ferry versus Eurotunnel, things to pack, essentials versus luxuries. Okay, Zane, here we go. My advice, travel through the whole of France on the toll roads and let the real adventure start as soon as you meet up with the wingman of the road team because you will half your journey time through France. And I think keep the real adventuring until you get to the wingman team because you will get to the wingman of the road team and you will be 
totally shattered, unless you've got, for example, a potential of taking, let's say three weeks off work or something like that. If time is slightly more restricted, just blast down as fast as you can. I always take the ferry as opposed to the Eurotunnel. The Eurotunnel, for anyone not in Europe, Eurotunnel is a tunnel that goes under the water from the UK or from England to France. It takes about 30 minutes, but it's more expensive than the ferry. And there's something magical about the ferry, Zane. Ride onto the ferry, you can sit there, you go and grab prime seat with a view in front of you. You get your English breakfast on there, you, you eat, you daydream about your travel down there. For me, it's the most magical thing going on a boat. So for me, get the boat, it's cheaper, it's more fun. Get the tolls down to the north of Spain. And one thing I did, which was quite ludicrous, Zane, I overpacked. I brought too many things around cooking utensils, thinking I may stop off and cook certain things. So I think I, I brought some ridiculous stuff that filled up the panniers. I would say it's almost better. Don't worry about bringing any cooking utensils or anything like that. Just accept you're going to be eating mainly on the road. Go to Lidl. I went to Lidl a lot by the end. Lidl's a really good place to go because you can get a salad and you can get some other simple things or just stop off in a, a simple trucker's spot as opposed to bringing a, a bowl, a knife and a fork and things like that. It just takes up too much space. I also bought too many pairs of trousers. I bought too many pairs of sweatshirts. In reality, just one pair of biking jeans, one simple biking jacket and a sweatshirt to wear underneath. And if you can, really tightly packed waterproofs, both trousers and a jacket, the ones that can roll up really, really tightly. The, the absolute key things I would say that it is impossible to travel without in my mind, and this isn't specifically brand specific, a quadlock setup or any phone mount set up because you need to be able to charge your phone all the time and you also need sat-nav because without sat-nav things are just not as fun and if you're having to worry about the charge on your phone it can destroy the trip. My, my charging wire broke that goes from my quadlock to my phone it broke and I couldn't find another one and uh, I couldn't find one for about a day. So I was always having to stop off in petrol stations every time I needed to, every time I needed to, to charge my phone and it just added an extra hassle that I'd have to stop for an hour every time to charge my phone. So you must have a phone charger. And one other thing I would say, try and make your luggage as simple as possible. I ended up strapping too much stuff onto the seat section of my bike for lots, for large parts of the trip. And if you strap too much stuff to the seat section of your bike and you need to get under your bike for whatever reason, whether it's to check the battery or other things or check some wires, it's a real hassle having to unstrap everything off your bike, then unscrew your seat so you can get into the seat. Keep everything as simple as possible. Get some panniers where you don't have to unstrap loads of bungee cords but it, because it will increase your enjoyment gigantically. Apart from that, take a, a couple of tools as well for the basics because 
otherwise you could be left stranded. Just do a quick check before you leave. See what tools you need to get, for example, under the seat or tighten up certain bits on the bike and take all of the adapters for each of those little bits and a nice little tool roll can help with that. But apart from that, Zane, I would say one of the biggest things that could stop us doing any kind of trip, whether it's a Euro trip or anything else, is, is overthinking. Honestly, you could decide right now to go off on a European trip and within two to three hours you could be heading off. That is in essence the amount of planning you need to do. It's quite close to zero now because we've got sat-navs that will tell us where to go. You don't need to worry about booking anywhere in advance at all. I just end up booking on the morning or early afternoon of the day that I'm riding. Just go onto booking.com or something like that. So really Zane, I wouldn't worry about almost any kind of planning at all. Just make sure you've got good panniers and sat-nav with foam charger. I'm jealous, happy travels. Moving on to Stuart. Freddie, as a mug to good Siona, I can confirm, they get under your skin. I'm really lucky to own uh, a few newish bikes, as well as a couple of older bikes, but I think the good CV7 will be one of the last to go. It does nothing very well. It's agricultural, has terrible fueling, etc. But it's just so much more than the sum of its parts. And boy, is it the best looking bike passing a shop window on a spring morning. It's wonderfully cool and I just love, uh, it's wonderfully cool and I just love it. All the best, Stuart. Yeah, Stuart, there is something about Goodsies. Moto Goodsies are the Alfa Romeo of the biking world. I don't think I've, I've, I know, I've driven one Alfa Romeo and I completely get it. And Moto Guzzi is exactly the same. Hello, Freddy. Looking at my first big bike after passing my test. I want a reliable bike, as everyone does, and for something not too dear. Probably about 2,000 to 3,500 pounds. I'd be using it for commuting to work, contending with rural potholes, motorway, 45 minutes each day and also for social year round. The bikes which have taken my interest are the Kawasaki ER6F, the Kawasaki ER6N. Just for those not familiar, the only difference between those, one is fared with wind protection and the other is in essence naked. BMW GS650, Honda NC750, Yamaha MT07, Yamaha MT03. Suzuki SV650. Sorry for all the examples, but I hope this gives an idea. I do understand it's a battle between dream and reality of everyday use. Yes, Callum, okay. I like to think I'm decently well-placed here to help out. And there are two bikes here, or one in essence, that for me really stand out. And that's the Kawasaki ER6F and ER6N. The reason I say that, I tried out for, was it a day or two? I can't remember how long it was, but the Kawasaki Z650 RS, that's in essence the exact same as the ER6F, the same engine, but it's in retro style. Uh, beautiful looking thing. And it was sublime to ride. The engine on that bike, for me, it doesn't get enough credit. It's an incredibly good characterful engine. I'm a huge, huge fan of it. I really am. I couldn't believe how good that 650cc engine is. Funny enough, one of my friends used to have an ER6F. It was in green. 650cc Kawasaki. And he, he got two hard panniers on it, but they're Kawasaki-specific hard panniers. 
I'll see if I can remember to put a pick up here because that's my friend's Kawasaki and my blue, what was it? Blue Bandit. And we went out for a spring ride a few years ago. And with these panniers on and the wind protection that that had, we went on a few rides together, in, including one multi-day trip to the Lake District. That, that's an incredible bike. That kept up with everything. Beautiful handling, so easy to manage with a very sensible weight. I, I, would, I wouldn't look any further than one of those Kawasaki's. In fact, I'll, I'll have a quick look to see what we'd be looking at here. If I go to Auto Trader, because anyone looking to get into biking and you want something that's going to be uh, a sensible bike that can do anything, so I'm on Auto Trader USA, autotrader.co.uk. If you want a first bike that won't break down, that can do anything, that will be fast enough to keep up with anything, you can put one of these up. 1,875 pounds for so much bike. 2007 model, Kawasaki ER6F, 10,000 miles on the clock. You just cannot go wrong with that. I'm looking back fondly at these because I've got good memories of that, especially in the green. It's a lot of bike for the money. Go with the Kawasaki, Callum. Let me know what you do go for. Right, I move on. Freddie, I wanted to pass comment on a point made by a fellow listener last week. He couldn't understand why you rave about Royal Enfield so much. Look, like you, the Royal Enfield is perfect style-wise for me. But I bought an XSR 700 Yamaha instead. Part of the reason was that my local motorcycle mechanic said that everyone he knows who has a Royal Enfield is almost always disappointed with the low power after a couple of months riding. So that's why I went for the XSR, given it has 30 more horses than most of the Enfields. Do you think that you'd be disappointed by 45 horsepower on a motorbike? It's a very good question. For me, Steve, if I'm being completely honest, my sweet spot for biking is, is 65 horsepower. That is the exact amount of horsepower in my eyes that in real road situations, really nothing will leave you unless you're with someone who really, really desperately wants to get a move on. But for me, 65 horsepower, I've never been left by, by any of me, my friends if we go out for a ride. Yeah, look, if someone wants to really give it someone, you're on a straight and they're on a, a, a super naked, they will be gone in the distance within five seconds compared to my Bonneville. But the amount of time that happens, you know, how many times do you really go 110 miles an hour and you gun it on a straight? I would say it's incredibly infrequent. For any kind of normal riding, for me, 65 horsepower. The upper limit for me where I think really, regardless of how good a rider you are, is 90 horsepower. Nine, over 90 horsepower, it's nice to have the extra horsepower, but you will not leave anyone, even if you're on a 150 horsepower bike compared to 90 horsepower. A 150 horsepower bike won't leave a 90 horsepower bike on real roads. I would put money on it. But, but Steve, you're mentioning 45 horsepower, and this is a really interesting point. And I completely understand that it's very easy for me to sit here and say, 20 horsepower on a classic 350, it's fine. 
47 horsepower on an interceptor, fine. But I don't actually own one of those bikes, so it wouldn't be completely fair for me to pass absolute judgment. So the best way I can put it, Steve, is probably this. When I'm looking at my next bike, I, I would probably, for me, for the kind of rider that I am, I would probably make sure that I, I stay at something around a 65 horsepower mark, but that's with a big if. There are trade-offs with everything. Example, I could look at the Royal Enfield Classic 350. That's just 20 horsepower. Or I could look at the Interceptor at 45 horsepower. They are down on horsepower, but they're, they're so up on character, style, the way they make you feel, that pure essence of biking, for me anyway, that makes me feel so incredibly happy when I ride it. It's life-affirming stuff for me that some bikes are so special I would trade off the power. So I won't lie and pretend I wouldn't like a bit more power in the Classic 350. I wouldn't like a bit more power in the Interceptor. Yes, I would, but the trade-off for me is worth it with the way it makes me feel because if we can quantify and put a value on feeling, which is incredibly hard to do, then those Royal Enfields have it. So yes, Steve, I will agree with you. It, it, you know, it's, it's a factor that would have to make me really seriously consider, look, is 45 horsepower enough? Is 20 horsepower enough? That's, it's really hard for me to say that, but it's true. But the benefits that come with it, just me thinking, would I buy a Classic 350 at 20 horsepower or the Interceptor? Yes, because it makes me feel so amazing. And I would have to buy that accepting the trade-offs because there are trade-offs with it. But it's, it's a very, very, very good question, Steve. I move on. Freddie, I'm going to test ride a Triumph Speed Twin. Ooh, okay, I've done a bit of research on this because this is a very pertinent question to a lot of people. I'm going to test ride a Speed Twin 1200 this month as soon as the sun shines. I think it's going to be a dangerous time for me. I'm told that getting PCP is the way to go, but is it? It almost seems too easy with no concern with, re uh, with resale when you're done with it. What are your thoughts? I'd be very interested to see your findings, as I'm told, rightly or wrongly, that this is the best way to buy new. Look, even if you have the funds to pay cash, as after maybe two to three years, you can just give the bike back, and then you're more or less guaranteed to be in pocket. You can also get your next bike to do the same should you want to. Is it just sales hype or not? I wonder how many people these days are buying this way and what are the pitfalls, if any? To take an example that I was given, a Speed Twin 1200 with a thousand pound deposit would cost the buyer 195 pounds a month uh, with the mileage set at 4,000 pounds. Okay, I really, really want to open this up to everyone. Please share your thoughts and experiences, uh, PCP, hire, purchase, any kind of finance you've had on your bike. What have been your experiences? Would you recommend it? What specific area of finance would you recommend or not? Because especially in the UK, finance is taking over everywhere. I think at least for cars, something like 95% of all car purchases are done on finance now. We just don't buy things out for cash now with regards to vehicles. Here's what I found out, Crumbly Mel. 
Let me just quickly go through it. There are three options on Triumph's website. Option one, PCP, personal contract purchase. Option two, higher purchase, HP. Final one is cash. Very simply, pay cash. The personal contract purchase is a finance plan, and I'm quoting here, that allows you to defer part of the cost of the motorcycle until the end of agreement. So what it does, the PCP, it reduces your regular monthly payments, and at the end of the term, you can choose to part exchange for an upgraded model on that bike, take ownership by buying the optional final balloon payment at the end, or you can simply return the motorcycle, no balloon payment, no partex with anything else, just return the bike. But if you return the bike, you've paid the deposit, you've paid the monthly payments, and you get nothing at the end of it. It's almost like leasing a bike in that term. If you do PCP, over 37 months, you put a deposit down for a Speed Twin 1200 worth £11,795. You would put a deposit of £2,359 down with, uh, with the total amount payable if you do PCP and you buy the bike outright, the balloon payment at the end, the total amount payable is £14,480. But that's assuming you buy the bike outright at the end. So you're looking at paying just under £2,000 in, in fact, sorry, just under £3,000 in interest. Okay, so the total charge for credit is £2,685 with a total payable of 14480 but, but, if you go for higher purchase, which is the simple kind of finance, in essence what it does, it just helps you spread the cost of your new motorcycle by paying one initial deposit amount, and after that you just pay equal monthly deposits, whereby at the end of the 37 months you own the bike outright, no balloon payments, no funny extra payments in between those months, it's one deposit for the bike, and equal monthly payments spread evenly, so by the end of the three years you'll own the bike, no messing about. If you do this option, you'll pay the exact same deposit, £2,359 as the PCP. It will be, instead of £134 a month for PCP, it will be £298 a month. So you'll be paying £260 a month more for higher purchase. But where higher purchase is better, the total amount payable for that motorbike, instead of £14,480, it will be £13,400. So you'll be paying £1,000 less for the higher purchase bike. Now, the difference here is that we have the flexibility with the PCP. You're paying less every month and then you can either pay the big lump sum at the end or you have the option to give the bike back stress-free so you don't have to worry about selling it and you can also upgrade it. So I would say it comes down to this crumbly mail. If you're planning on keeping the bike, I would say do the higher purchase because you're going to be paying less for that bike in simple terms. If you're the kind of person who likes switching their bike every three years or so, I would say the PCP turns into a very appealing prospect because you pay less every month and you don't have to worry about selling that bike back at the end of your time with it. 
So it will come down to those two options. For me, I like keeping a bike. I would do the higher purchase because simply put, you'll pay less for the bike. But please, please, I would love to hear your thoughts and opinions on any pitfalls or stories about bike finance. I move on. Freddie. Ah, okay. I was wondering last episode, how on earth can someone own 100 bikes? And this is from Steve. Steve in Northern Ireland. This is the exact gentleman I was discussing his bike history with. And he's had five, I think, Honda VRFs. Here's how you get to having over 100 bikes. Straight from the horse's mouth. Freddie, you are wondering how someone can own 100 bikes. And, and why would someone buy the same bike five times? It comes down to the number of birthdays. I'm 60 years old this year and I've been biking on the road since I was 16. During this time, I've never been without a bike and I've had as many as six bikes at one time. Now you read out in one of my previous letters where you said, um, where I sent you some pictures and explained that I loved buying and trying different styles and sizes of bikes. I like to buy low mileage, mint condition bikes or at the other end of the spectrum, scruffy, maybe slightly damaged non-runners that I can restore. And when I'm selling, I can afford to wait for my asking price because I always have other options to ride and I don't need to sell. It really has not cost me much money as I've had, as I've made quite a few profits and I only really made losses from the bikes I bought new. I've had literally everything from Vespas to Harleys to R1s to dirt bikes. But why five Honda VRFs or VFRs? Well, I love them. My first was an early 750 I bought in the mid 90s, well used but glorious to ride. Then in the early 2000s, I bought the blue one. I think I've got some pictures here, let me put these up. I bought the, uh, a blue one, 800 FI, a bit scruffy, high mileage, didn't keep it long, the scratches bothered me, but I wanted another. So I found a mint 800cc VTEC in silver. I sold it rather quickly because I fancied doing my motorcycle instructor training, so I sold it for a Suzuki V-Strom, better suited to long days in the saddle. But I gave up with that plan and realized the costs and number of bikes needed for the business to get going. So a few years later, I came across a red VTEC, mint 8,000 miles. It was a keeper, except it wasn't. I found a limited edition 50th anniversary Mike Held replica, which I had for a few years. But then I was made an offer that I couldn't refuse on it and went for a thousand CC phaser, I think after that. I've since settled down partly because prices got silly, partly because my wife and I bought a crazy house in a forest. You can see a picture, or you can see part of it with a Himalayan pick, and then the grandkids arrived and priorities shifted. Stephen, you, you describe the, the opposite of my buying and selling history. Monica always gets furious at me because I'm, I'm always a forced seller. I only ever have one bike, and when I decide to sell it's because I'm so desperate to buy another bike. Take my... What have I done recently? Two previous bikes. One was a Suzuki Bandit. I remember I had it up for sale, 900 pounds. I thought, look, it's, it's quite nice condition. Put it up for 900. Um, no one interested. And then someone came that, that they bit at 850 pounds. A guy came down from Wales all the way. And he was fairly tight with cash. I know this because he told me. And this was going to be his, 
his everyday bike for all of his rides and commuting and every, every kind of transport for him. He didn't have a car. Came down from Wales, uh, picked up the bike. He said, look, is it reliable? I said, yep, it's, it's fine. It's got a bit of a quirk sometimes where the fuel line can pinch and I shared that on the advert and I said, but it's been fine for the past two months since I sorted it out. Two hours after I sold it for 850 to 900 pounds-ish, I had a call and he said, Freddie, the, the bike is broken down on my way to Wales. And my heart just dropped and he said, please, Freddie, please, can I just have a refund? I can't take the hit on this. Uh, so I, I semi-reluctantly said, yeah, okay, can you bring it back and I'll give a refund? Because of course I'd signed the logbook over to him. So now it's gonna have two extra owners because I signed the logbook online. I didn't do it via signature. Uh, but I just said, yeah, just bring it back, bring it back. Gave him his money back. And no one wanted it after I tried selling it online. I ended up dropping it from 850 pounds to about 200 pounds. Still no one wanted it, dropped it down and someone eventually haggled down. I think it was below about 200 pounds I ended up selling it for. So within the space of a week, I'd sold it for about 900 and ended up selling it for about 170 pounds by the end of it. Just, I'm the world's worst seller. If something doesn't sell for me, I would drop the price by 100 pounds every day. And then I'll start putting ridiculous wording into the, the advert saying, must go, urgent sale needed. And then, and people are just rubbing their hands together thinking, here we go. Here we go, we've got a desperate seller. So I've lost money on every bike I've ever owned. Big money. I move on, Freddie. Most of us just get one or two weeks holiday in the year to spend on the bike, if we're lucky. If you had to choose, where would you travel to from the UK or Ireland for a mini adventure? Niall, I've got one because I've got some in my shortlist. I want to do something really big and crazy. Uh, the obvious ones are the likes of of Italy and Croatia is incredible. I've done Croatia, I highly recommend. But Niall, Morocco and Egypt are possible. Egypt, I guess you'd go, would you go past to the east of Italy and down through Greece past Bosnia and maybe get a ferry there? Or Morocco, go down through Spain and into Morocco. I think they would be doable on two week trips, especially if you just take the tolls the whole way and blast down through Europe as quickly as you can until you get to Africa. A trip in Africa, Nile, I think would be a trip of a lifetime. And it's just about doable within a one to two week trip if you really blast through the top bit of Europe. Keep an eye out, Nile, because I'm considering one of these too. I move on. Moto Guzzi V7850 is pure magic and character, style and superb build quality and pricing. The 850 has loads of low down torque and really picks up well, handles well, will do 100 miles an hour, no problem if need be. The handmade Italian history also nailed it for me. But after sales in the UK is also slow. I had to wait four months to get header pipes changed, but I accept that the Italian style and craftsmanship is going to be slow in a world of fast, high production options man-made club. Yeah, I know. This just sounds, oh, tell me if I'm wrong, this just sounds so Italian. Just four month wait. I've heard from so many owners of Ducati and Motoguzzi that over the summer they just had to wait months for parts for the bike. It almost makes you think you need a second bike just to tide you over. 
Moving on to Oliver, Freddie Royal Enfield might not have the best, basically insert anything here, but that's not the point. They're cheap, characterful, and that's what matters to the people that buy them. Also, most of the points being mentioned in the Royal Enfield rant from the previous episode, they can also be compared to Harley Davidson as well, except the price of the Harley is astronomical compared to the Royal Enfield, regards Oliver. Mm, good point, Oliver. Move on to Nick. Freddie, I recently bought a Rogue. Okay, I bought a Rogue full face helmet, but I get a lot of wind noise from the top of the visor. Also, the seal isn't great. I've looked at the Gringo S, that looks similar. The showy Glamster is a lot of money and still not that retro. I'm thinking of the next G100. I think I had that helmet actually. It's a well-made helmet, I think it's German. But other than that, I'm lost for ideas for a retro full face helmet. I've just gone back to wearing my open face with goggles, but I'm conscious that it doesn't offer the best amount of protection, especially for longer motorway journeys. What are your thoughts and recommendations? Nick, uh, yeah, I feel your pain with this. I've done in the UK a few motorway journeys with an open face helmet, but our roads are so atrocious in the UK a lot of the time in the UK, I don't know if other countries are like this, they'll just sprinkle small stones on the motorways and on roads. So you have all of these loose stones and they hope that drivers and riders will just bed them in over the course of a few weeks. So, so many of our roads in the UK, they're just full of semi-loose gravel and pebbles. I don't understand why we do it. Why are they so atrocious like that? So going on motorways, with an open face helmet in the UK. I'm constantly getting pebbles smashing into my face on an open face helmet. And you only really notice it once you go from a full face helmet to open face. And I'm spending the whole time on the motorways wincing in agony, waiting for the next stone chip. Then I get to Tenerife and I'm riding all day, seven, eight hours a day in an open face helmet with no concern at all because the tarmac is laid in a high quality manner, where it's as smooth as a racetrack, whereas the UK, for some reason, we don't believe in that. You, you put loads of these tiny stone pebbles down, you put a sign on saying loose road surface for the first month until the rest of the car drivers semi-bed it down, and then there you go, there's a road. I don't know why we have such low quality roads in the UK. So in a, a full face helmet, going back to my point, Nick, yeah, it does make it more pleasant on the longer journeys in the UK. But I'll be completely honest, a helmet is the one thing I've never quite found the perfect one of. Everything else I have, but helmets, no. I like the exclusive helmets, Rage Shiny Black, but helmets with a visor or helmets with goggles that you actually lift up, elasticated, they are more hassle because it's much easier just lifting a visor with your left hand. But if you've got the strapped visor or strapped goggles, you have to lift them with both hands and it does make them a bit less easy to live with on a daily basis. The ones, Nick, that I always hear good things about are the Bell Bullets and the Showy Zero X. I'll put them up here. It's a Bell and a Showy. They get, from what I've heard so far, universally good feedback. So I'd be looking at that. The next XG100 is good, but the, the strap of the elastic, it stops there on a little clip either side. It doesn't go all the way around the back of the helmet. And that means that 
there's not much give to stretch the elastic and lift the visor up from the top. So I found it incredibly difficult to actually live with if I wanted to stop at traffic lights and actually lift the visor. Um, so I prefer ones where the strap goes the whole way round. Uh, let me know what you do go for because the Bell Bullet may well be my next choice of retro. I think that may be the ultimate. On to Kahi. Freddie, I think you're spot on saying that no bike is dull. I remember my first bike being a small Japanese wreck that I always considered a piece of beep. But looking back in hindsight, that piece of beep taught me so much. And I now look about how I ride, how I rode that bike in awe. So that tells me that nothing is anything until we connect a belief to it. Cheers, mate. Keep up the good work. I like that. Nothing is anything until we connect a belief to it. Thank you. Freddie, moving on. Picking up a brand new black and white Speedmaster next week. The question is, should I decat it now or wait till I've done a thousand kilometers on it? Jamie. Jamie, I've known, I think, two Triumph riders who have decat their fairly new Triumphs. I don't think, to the best of my knowledge, and I welcome anyone else jumping in here, I don't think they noticed too much difference, but one of them found it a bit of hassle, actually, adding this decat element to the bike. I've heard mixed reviews on these. I've heard some people saying, you have to then check other elements of the bike if you decat it. And sometimes you have to just change the running of the bike, whether that's through a software element or something else. So just double check that it's a simple enough process and it doesn't lead on to some other issues with the bike. Going on hearing from my friends, I'm probably on the fence, Jamie, just seeing, seeing how they've been with, with the decat element of their Triumph bikes. I don't think they noticed a significant enough difference in the performance of the bike. And even the sound of it probably wasn't the most gigantic difference. So I'm on the fence on it, Jamie, actually. I'm not 100% sure how much riding you need to do to bed it in before you can do it. But I welcome anyone's thoughts on that. For just what I've heard, uh, I'm unsure about that as a modification. But really interesting that you brought that up. Thank you. Moving on to Dennis. Freddie, I've got a new Triumph Bonneville T120. Yes, it's a good bike. Yes, it looks beautiful, lovely to ride, but it's overpriced. The suspension isn't great and the stock tires are poor. Let me put this into some context. I don't think the suspension or tires are any better than the interceptors. Is the Bonneville a better bike than the interceptor? Yes, it's much better, but is it twice as good a bike? No, the prices though, the T100 is probably the fairer comparison and worth the differential. Dennis, very interesting to hear from a T120 owner here. In England, just to give everyone some relativity, Bonneville T120, £11,800. Interceptor, £6,600. So you need to pay £5,200 extra for the Interceptor. Uh, for the T120 over the Interceptor. And is it 5,000? It's a lot of money, 5,200 more. Is it worth that extra? I, I, I can see where the extra money's gone to an element, 
but can I see £5,000 worth of extra? Uh, it's a tough one. It's a tough one, Dennis, but I'm, I'm going to take your word for it as an owner of a T120. Thank you for sharing that. On to Billy. On to Billy from the US. Freddie, in the US. Oh, this is, a, this is another interesting insight from the US here. In the US, the adventure bike on many people's wish list is the Harley Pan America. It's got all of the tech that you would want and is adaptable, and it's adaptable ride height, lowers the bike when stopped. But the only thing that's stopping it from sweeping the market here in the US is the Harley price point of $20,000. On the cruiser side of things, Freddie, the Honda Rebel 1100 has started to get a pretty decent, excuse me, a pretty decent cult following here in the States. I see group rides with nothing but them all the time. Honestly, it 100% seems to me the reason the Harley Davidson Nightster. Have a look at this pic, Harley Nightster and Honda Rebel 1100. Honestly, it seems 100% the reason to me that the Harley Nightster was even attempted because of the Rebel 1100. They saw a share, or Harley saw a share of their market going to the Japanese cruisers and tried a lower priced cruiser that didn't ride as well. I mean, people love Indians because they look immaculate, but the Rebel just rides better. I don't have to worry about my pegs scraping on every single turn. And how slowly, oh, uh, and it's, and slowly, and has slowly become a middle finger, a giant middle finger, to, uh, to the bar and shield rising point in the US. And it's a bike that you can customize and fit to almost any rider. Also, funnily to note, a lot of us didn't even go, a lot of us Honda Rebel owners didn't even go to the dealership until we had to sign the paperwork for a Rebel. A good deal of us bought online because most places were out of stock, so it was the only way we could track them down. Honda could have uh, the most boring dealerships in the world, and honestly, it wouldn't matter. Billy. Billy, I'm hearing a, a, a different side different takes on the, the American biking scene here. Thank you for sharing that. And having ridden a Honda Rebel 1100, genuinely fun, cool. I was a huge fan of that bike. It's dynamic. It looks good. I look back at my time with the Rebel, especially the 1100, the one I rode, with hugely fond memories. That's a very, very good bike. I had to share this. This is a, just a little interaction between two people talking about future electrification. And it often comes down to something as simple as this when I, when I look at other people's interactions and conversations. It's often the older generation who, who are far less sure about electrification and often the younger generation who see much more pro-electrification. And I welcome anyone coming back on me with that if you think that's complete madness or not. I sit somewhere in the middle. I am not sure that electrification is pushing on enough, but let me just share this with you. This is from Raymond. Oh, Ramon, apologies. People who say electric isn't ever gonna happen are huffing so much opium that I, I cannot, I literally cannot even relate. 
Electric will happen, both because it's a sound idea in engineering and because governments are going to make it happen one way or another, regardless of what loud exhaust boys think. A repost. And battery tech, charging infrastructure, the breakthrough battery technology that is required just as likely as a breakthrough fuel. The reality I see is that we will have both. It's weird to me that people only seem to be able to look at this as black and white, oppositional and mutually exclusive, and always with a snide judgmental put down. That seems to sum up um, both sides of the argument extremely well. This is from JB. Tires, Freddie. A case of style over function. How much do you focus on the sort of tires that you use on the Bonneville? What's your priority? Style, comfort, sporty road holding, wet performance, cold warm up, longevity. And how much are you prepared to spend on tires and how often do you replace them? JB. And I continue from JB. For my part, it depends on the bike. Look, the Yamaha VMAX is about supporting the weight and the big torque from the rear tire and going for grippy sports tires. Uh, they wear very quickly. But the Honda CB1100 is more about touring and all-season grip and going for sports touring tyres. Longer lasting, but still sporty. In both cases, they're premium tyres, and I tend to change them every one to two years. JB, probably for me, I, I do honestly end up scrimping a bit on servicing parts. For example, if I get an oil filter, I'll often just buy the cheap one on eBay. Air filter... I'll often but just buy cheap eBay stuff. Even brakes, I will buy at most mid-level because I just think for the Bonneville, there's no point. So I often just buy basic brakes, I'll be completely honest. Although my brakes failed in Tenerife, so that shouldn't be an advert for that. I could easily have died. Uh, but tyres is the one thing I, I will always go top level on. Top level. Mid to top level. I mean, maybe there's some extreme versions that I, I can't do. But I'll always go high end with the tyres. I do like Michelin tyres. Uh, the, the big thing for me, JB, I don't care about longevity. I just care about grip in the wet. I'll always go for a tyre that has very good wet grip. So if I'm just having a quick read of different tyres, I'll always make sure one of the advertising sales points on that tyre is good wet grip. JB, the, the mileage on my Michelin, Michelin Road Classics, no one can believe this. I spoke to Michelin and they, they couldn't believe it either. 17,000 miles I've done in them and they've still got probably three to 4,000 miles worth of tread left. I've had them, I'm sure it's got to be pushing two and a half years, 17,000 miles. It's incredible. Wrapping up with Sean. Freddie. Got my license last summer. I did a lot of miles on the Meteor 350, but I traded it for a T120. Now I want a Monster. Do I get the Monster as a second bike or do I trade for daily enjoyment? Also, I'm late to the game as I came into biking at 38 years old. Is this what a new convert is to expect? Yeah, Sean, it is. In my first one and a half years, Sean, maybe coming up to two, one and a half to two years of biking, I owned three bikes. 
And then after that first one and a half years of owning three bikes, I had my speed triple for four years when I found the bike at the time that was the bike for me. So yes, Sean, you will do this. You have to. Got a friend of mine, Danny, in Ipswich. I'm sure he's had, I'm sure he's had four bikes in about the space of a year or so. You have to do this, Sean, to figure out the kind of rider that you are. And it's almost impossible to do that until you try different bikes. So go for it, accept it, and enjoy the madness of the journey. I would say sell the T120, Sean, and just buy and use the Monster. Because I don't think there'll be any need for keeping a T120 and a Monster. I can see that you want the monster, maybe you want the extra dynamism. I can completely understand that because the monsters are meant to be superb bikes. Get the monster, use it for your daily enjoyment. Get rid of the T120 so you don't have the hassle of owning two bikes and possibly not using one. Enjoy the extra money that you have after selling it. And then of course with the monster, you can always move it on if it's not the right bike for you. You may well find that you have to do maybe even three or four different swaps, but I would say go for the Monster because it will add something very different to the T120. And we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much everyone for listening to this week's episode. Please do uh, get in touch, share all of your thoughts, share your stories. The email address and everything is in the written description below as well as the Instagram page. And please do leave a comment on your thoughts on anything chatted about in this week's episode. Thanks so much all. Have a fantastic week and I'll speak to you all in the next one.